It's Pentecost Sunday, and even though I'm not going to be speaking on Pentecost this morning, I'm so thankful that God sent His Holy Spirit, aren't you? And uh, with that in mind, just let me ask a question. How many of you know what one week ago last Thursday was? You were supposed to give the wrong answer, Liz. You gave the right answer and you stole all my thunder. I was hoping somebody would say it was May 21st. But Liz gave the right answer. It was Ascension Day. Now, uh, Ascension Day is not a very commonly celebrated day. But it's an important day. I'm guessing that if you... If you went to Walmart or to Ace Hardware or maybe even to JCPenney if it was open, um, you, you probably didn't notice ascension lights or ascension trees or ascension bunnies or special candy celebrating Ascension Day. But that doesn't diminish the importance of that day. Um, in fact, I don't think I've ever paid much attention to Ascension Day myself. And there are lots of reasons why Ascension Day gets skipped over. For one thing, it always falls on a Thursday. For another, although it is a religious holiday, most modern-day churches don't observe Ascension Day. I mean, you know, I, I get Good Friday. We, we observe the day on which our Lord Jesus was crucified on the cross. I, I get Easter Sunday when he rose from the dead. I get... Today, the day of Pentecost, when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to to empower his followers that had gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. (coughs) And, uh, but you know, in comparison to those days, Ascension Day can somewhat seem like a downer. I read a quote from Barbara Brown Taylor, the famous author and preacher, and she said it this way. She said, Ascension Day seems like the day when we were left behind. Of course, we understand that Ascension Day is the day on which Jesus went back to heaven uh, following his resurrection from the dead and spending uh, 40 days with his disciples here on the earth. He ascended back into heaven, and yeah, I can kind of agree with that sentiment that it kind of feels like the day when we were left behind. And so I've given the title of my message today in this fifth part of our sermon series, Dying to Live Again, the title, Left Behind. Now, in the Word of God, we, uh, we read about the ascension of Jesus, and we find that it's discussed in a, in a few different ways. Uh, the writer to Hebrews, for example, he emphasizes it uh, as being the entry of Jesus the high priest into the true sanctuary of God in heaven where he shows himself as being the final, ultimate, and perfect sacrifice. You'll remember we, we talked about last week, if you were here for the drive-in service from Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2, the writer mentions that we, we look to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated, signaling completion, at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, over many years of my life, particularly going back to when I was a young child growing up in church, I would wonder, and I guess I still do from time to time, why can't we see Jesus? Why can't we see him? You know, I, I would, as a child, I would ask that question out of curiosity. And I guess as an adult, I, I find myself often asking it to myself in frustration. Why can't I see Jesus in all that's happening in our world today? And it's one of those unexpectedly hard questions that we've probably all asked at one time or another. But one of the reasons that it's important for us to understand that Jesus, as our ultimate high priest, completed all of the duties, all of the things necessary that the high priest would do on a daily basis in the temple, and especially what he would do once a year on what is called the Day of Atonement. 
When he went into the Holy of Holies and there presented the sacrifice that appeased, if I can use that term, the sins of the people for another year. But then they had to come back year after year after year on that same day to have their sins appeased once again. The difference being, Jesus, our high priest, did not give us an appeasement for our sins. He gave us forgiveness of our sins. Once for all time, the work was completed and the work was done. Now, more often, the Bible talks about Jesus sitting on his throne at the right hand of God when he returns to rule and reign upon this earth. But for most of us, the ascension of Jesus going back to heaven after his resurrection looks more like this moment that I mentioned earlier. It kind of feels like we were left behind. It looked like a leaving for Jesus, but it was actually a returning to his Father. If you're in the Gospel of Acts, in your Bibles, or on your smartphone at the, uh, with the Bible app, I'd like for you to go with me to Acts chapter number 1. And I want to read to you about the ascension, beginning with verse number 6. But before I do that, let me just give you a little bit of context. You'll find in the first five verses, not only the introduction to the book of Acts, but it tells us that Jesus had presented himself alive to many men after suffering, after his suffering on the cross. And he had appeared to them for 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And he told them, he said, now guys, don't leave Jerusalem because when I ascend to the Father, I'm going to send to you the Comforter. And as we all know, on this day of Pentecost, 10 days following Jesus' ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit fell in the upper room. And they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there, at that moment, began the early church of which you and I are still a part. So that's the context. And we come to verse number 6. And it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I, I just got to stop right there for a second. <laughs> These guys haven't gotten it for three and a half years. And now they've seen Jesus crucified on the cross. They've witnessed the reality of his resurrection from the dead. And yet it's still in their mind, okay, Jesus, is this the time that you're going to make Israel the kingdom, your kingdom? They still don't get it. And do you know why they don't get it? They won't get it until the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. And then all of a sudden, the light will go on. And at long last, these guys finally understand God's plan. So let's go on in verse number 7. Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What a great passage. Jesus himself talks about this that we've just read in Revelation chapter number 22 the very last chapter in our Bible. And he's revealing his heart to the Apostle John who is writing down the revelation. And Jesus says, in, beginning in verse number 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense or my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the word of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. And then he said this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely... I am coming soon. Amen. He says, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. In other words, just to put it much much shorter and much more succinctly, Jesus is saying, I am the kingly Messiah. I am coming soon. I have ascended as the king and I will come again to bring my kingdom into its fullness. Now the psalmist talks about this clear back in Psalm number 97, verse number 1, where he said, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. And then this great line from Psalm 97, verse number 6, All the people see His glory. Friends, we're going to see the glory of the Lord. And I believe that we don't have to wait to heaven to see the, all the glory of the Lord. Heaven's going to be so, much, so far beyond what we can comprehend here. But I believe that there is a place where we can experience the glory of God while we are still here and a part of His church. Amen? Now, even though it's in the Psalms, the people seeing His glory, whether we realize it or not, is the answer to a prayer that Jesus prayed in the Gospel of John, chapter number 17. You'll remember the setting. Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, and they had just participated in what we call the Last Supper. And after they had finished eating, Jesus began to pray not only for his disciples, but he began to pray for every follower of Jesus uh, then and to come. And that includes us. And he says, beginning in verse number 20 of chapter 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, speaking of us, may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And then he goes on with his prayer. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I know, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. What a prayer. You want to know how to experience the glory of the Lord? You want to know how to see Jesus? Love as he loved. It's very, very simple. I came across a book entitled Practicing the Resurrection. Interestingly enough, Practicing the Resurrection, the book was written by the same man who gave us the translation that we call the message, Eugene Peterson, who died just a few short months ago. In that book, Peterson says, in the story of the ascension, we find the opening scene that establishes the context for everything that follows. 
Jesus installed in a position of absolute rule, Christ our King. All men and women live under the rule of Jesus. And he says, and this is the part I want you to hear, this rule of living under the rule of Jesus trumps all other thrones and principalities and powers. Friends, God is still in control of this world. There's not anything that's happened over the last three months or the last three years or the last 300 years that God did not know about before it happened. He did not have to say, oh no, what am I going to do now? I've got to find a plan B. God has already factored all of this in to his grand and his glorious plan. Why? Because he's the king. Now, we need to talk about this king thing for just a second, and here's the reason why. Being a king sounds awesome, but it's really hard for those of us in America to comprehend. We don't have enough experience with living under royalty in order for that image to fully click in our minds. But the Bible says that's okay because Jesus, he's not like any earthly king you ever knew anyway. And so it begins to talk about Jesus being the king and all of that means. The psalmist back in Psalm number 68, verse 18 and 19, has probably one, what I believe to be one of the best ascension texts in all of Scripture. He said, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Would you say that with me? God is our salvation. He is deliverance for us, friends. He's deliverance from anything that this world can throw at us. He's deliverance from sin. And He's going to deliver us into heaven where we can experience His glory, where He will rule and reign forevermore. Now, what makes that passage, I believe, so very cool is that it tells us that Jesus ascends and in doing so he frees the captives, receiving, receives gifts from those who are even rebellious. He cleans things up. And then God bears us up and is our salvation or our deliverance. I want to, I'm sharing this with you this morning because I want us to understand something that probably none of us have ever thought of. I know I haven't. The ascension was a gift to this world. Now here's why I, mean, why I say that. It's interesting that when the Apostle Paul talks about the ascension in Ephesians chapter 4 verse number 8, he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to people. Now, did you catch that? He gave gifts to people. Now, take that and contrast it to what I read to you from Psalm 68. It said there that we, he receives gifts from among men. What's the difference between Psalm 68 and Ephesians chapter number 4? There's one big thing that happened in between. Jesus established his reign as king forever. And he did that on the Mount of Calvary. He rose from that tomb and he ascended on high. And he led those that were captive to sin free. And then not only that, but he gave gifts to us instead of receiving gifts from us. Now, Psalm says he received gifts from us. Ephesians says he gave gifts to us. Is there a contradiction there? No. The Apostle Paul, and I, I have to believe that when the Apostle Paul is writing this word, and he knows being a student of, of the word uh, of the Old Testament, it all of a sudden occurs to him what he's getting ready to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I believe a smile has to come to Paul's face because he realizes that Psalm 68, uh, 18, where it says he receives gifts from us, is not a contradiction to what the Spirit is asking him to write on giving gifts to us. He just smiles and he says, the answer to your question about it being a contradiction is no. 
It's not. And we argue and say, well, one says he receives gifts and the other one says he gives gifts. Yeah, God does receive our gifts. But what's important about the ascension isn't the gifts that we bring to the king. You see, what we don't understand in America here, because we don't live under a kingly rule, is those that live under a kingly rule, they are to bring their gifts to their king as a sign of homage and and support to the king. Uh, Gifts when he's coronated as the king of their country. But this king, Jesus our king, and only Jesus our king, this one always and forever gives gifts to the people when he assumes his rightful place on his throne. Now, Paul would probably say, look, right here in that text from Revelation that we read earlier, where all of a sudden we go from the spirit and the bride say to Jesus, come and, and let everyone who hears say come and to let everyone who is thirsty come John realizes that he's not talking about Jesus coming anymore. He's talking about Jesus who has already come. He's already come. He says, let anyone who desires to take the water of life without price. Think about that, friends. Think of the worst, most heinous sinner that you've ever heard or read about. Jesus says... Let him or her take from the water of life freely. That tells me that the forgiveness that Jesus offers, in contrast to the appeasement that the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament offers, is a much better thing because any sin, every sin, no matter how big or how small, has no power against the blood of Jesus. We are set free from the shackles of sin. We are no longer captivated by it. And the Jesus who's going to return to judge the nations eventually and wipe out all injustice and come with his angel armies is still the same Jesus who throughout his life here on earth kept giving and giving and giving and giving. He fed 5,000 men. And he did that even though he knew they were going to misunderstand what he was doing and feeding them. He fed them anyway. He turned water into wine even though he didn't want to start doing those kinds of things yet. You'll remember he told his mother Mary when she said, turn this, they're out of wine. Jesus, what can you do about it? And Jesus said, woman, my time has not come yet. And yet that's when the moment the Spirit of God says, yes, it has. And he turned water into wine and and healed the sick. He started doing all of those kinds of things. And then he gave his own life. You see this pattern of Jesus giving and giving and giving. And he kept on giving clear after his resurrection. Because he ascended into heaven and he kept giving. And on the day of Pentecost, as he promised, he gave us the Holy Spirit. And friends, I tell you that because Jesus deserves everything that we can give to him. And even when we don't give to him all that we should give to him, he just keeps giving and giving. He's always got forgiveness available. He's always got healing available. He's always got his presence to comfort and to guide, readily available for anyone who needs it. Now, everything that I just shared with you, most of you already know. You know that he gives us good gifts. We've been forgiven. We've received his grace. We've been given so much. But do we understand this thought? Grace is way, way more than just forgiveness. You remember what we read from John 17 a little while ago in that prayer that Jesus was praying for his followers? He prayed to his father and he said these words. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. Well, the them, obviously, is us. He's talking about those who believe in me through the word of my disciples. And and he's not using the word us as a metaphor. We're those who have believed in Jesus because of what has been told us through those who passed the word down after the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. You heard me say this before, but I'll say it again just as a reminder. When Peter came out of that upper room... Now remember, 
What's gone on in the last month and a half of Peter's life? He's denied Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. He was so disillusioned after Jesus' death on the cross. He told his disciple buddies, guys, I'm going fishing. And I think in saying that, Peter was saying, what's the use? It's all over with. I'm going back to what I know. I'm going back to what I know that I can do. And then Jesus appears to him resurrected from the dead. And he tells Peter, Peter, I have a mission for you. I have a mission for you. And Peter's probably thinking, okay, but how am I going to do it? And then out of obedience, he and the other disciples go into the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And they're praying together with another hundred and... 108 or so believers. And all of a sudden, they hear a sound of a rushing mighty wind. And fire like cloven tongues begins to settle on them. And they begin to speak in unknown languages the wonders and the glory of God. Now this was something that had never happened to them before. They never understood. But notice what happens to Peter. He's baptized in the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden he gets the preacher itch. He hasn't prepared for a message. He doesn't have three points in an outline. He just goes out and he begins speaking as the Spirit gives him utterance. And he explains what just happened in the upper room. He said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the Old Testament. Now imagine that. Peter's whole character, his whole nature, has been transformed by this gift of the Holy Spirit. God has bestowed upon Peter in that moment the glory of his son Jesus. No one had ever preached like that before. And the anointing that came upon Peter and upon every one of the disciples to go do what God had told them to do, or what Jesus had told them to do. What did he tell them to do? He said, you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And they began to preach. They didn't have seminary degrees. They didn't have biblical training. They didn't go to pastor school. They just begin to walk in the anointing of the Spirit. And the results are right in this room today. The Lord added to the church. The Lord multiplied the church as a result of the preaching of His Word. Now, <clears throat> just in case you can't grasp that, let me just tell you, that's crazy. That's crazy that God could do something like that to any one of us. Not all of us, I don't believe, are as stubborn and stiff-necked as was Peter. And God did it through him. Peter became the great leader of the new church, the early church. Through Peter, on that day, three thousand souls were added to the kingdom of God. In my own estimation, I don't think it was that great a sermon. It didn't follow what I've been taught has to constitute a sermon. But I'll tell you what it did do. It brought about the anointing. And when you have the anointing, Everything else has to take a back seat. Because when the anointing of the Spirit is present, God can do great and mighty things. And He can, he can bring healing. He can bring restoration. He can put together that which has been broken in us. And He can make us accomplish the purposes for which He created us. You know what He needs? One thing, 
a willing vessel. That's all he needs. He just needs us to be willing. Say, God, anoint me with the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak through me. Use me. If there's anything in me, God, that you can use, here I am. And God will give great and mighty things to those who are willing. Now, I said that because, friends, there's a long ways between having our sins canceled out and walking in the glory that God gave to His Son, Jesus, and which Jesus gives to us. The point at which that happens, the point at which we are glorified because Jesus is glorified, it happened at the ascension. Now let me explain. Just like the cross was a gift for us and for the world, just like the resurrection was a gift for us in the world, just like Pentecost is a gift for us in the world, the ascension is also a gift for us and for the world. Why? Because the ascension of Jesus into, the, into heaven is the ascension of humanity to the throne of God. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus, the human Jesus, ascends to the throne of God where he is at the right hand of God making intercession for you and for me. That's why he tells us, bring your needs boldly to the throne because I am here and what I have, I have given you and that is access to the very throne of God in heaven. Wow. I mean, think about it. When Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, it's the first time that human flesh, the dust of the earth, sits on the throne of God. So the ascension of Jesus to the throne is the ascension of humanity to the throne. Again, the words of Barbara Brown Taylor that I referenced earlier, she put it this way, by ascending bodily into heaven, Jesus showed us that flesh and blood are good, not bad. They are, that they are good enough for Jesus, they are good enough for heaven, and they are good enough for Father God. And then she says, by putting them on and keeping them on the throne of his, in His humanity... Jesus has not only brought God to us, he has brought us to God. Hmm. Let me just add this to all that. And the reason I'm adding this is because I know that there are many people in the world today that struggle with the image of God as being a father because they've not had a good example of an earthly father. And it makes it difficult for them to understand a heavenly father. Jesus asks for glory. And he gets it from the father. And then he passes it on to you and I. And just to be clear, the father is in on this plan, friends, from the beginning. Actually, from before the beginning. And he's all for it. It's not like Jesus has ascended to the throne and is now tricking his father into giving us glory. John said in verse number 24 of that 17th chapter, excuse me, Jesus said, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Where is he at? The throne of God. To see my glory which you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. And if you look at the phrase right before that in John 17 in verse number 23, again, Jesus states the obvious. You have loved them even as you have loved me. Friends, do we understand this morning who we are in Christ Jesus? We are heirs of God just as He is. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Because he has forgiven us and because he has elevated us to his throne where he sits, we are somebody. 
We matter. We are significant. Now, again, the Father, the Father glorifies the Son because He loved Him from before the foundation of the world, and the Father glorifies us through the Son because He loved us from before the foundation of the world. Now, I hope you figured out from all of that that there's a point to which all of this glory that we've been given, there's a purpose and a job to do with that glory. Jesus in His prayer says it, I believe, five times if I counted right. He says, the glory that you have given me, I've given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become completely one. The purpose of the ascension, friends, was to create oneness. Oneness. And creating oneness also has its purpose. Why care whether or not the world knows that the Father sent the Son? Why care whether people know that God loves them? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. He says, I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And with that, we have this big cycle of things. The gift of love leading to the gift of glory, leading to the gift of unity, leading to the gift of knowledge, leading to the gift of leading to the gift of glory, and more and more and more. It just keeps going and going and going. And the ultimate gift, Jesus himself in us. I didn't hear any amens, but I'm sure, I'm sure that you, I'm sure that there was a rousing round of them. Jesus in us. He lives in us. He walks with me. And He talks with me. And He tells me that I am His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, no one has ever known. Jesus in us us. What does it look like in practical terms as I close? Love, unity, knowledge, the indwelling of Jesus, all that awesome stuff. But how do we get it from here to here? That's the real question. You see, from here all of life generates. How many of you figured out by now that if your heart quits? Randy, did you figure that out? <laughs> if your heart quits, you've got a problem. Life stops. And you say, well, it's the brain that sends the signal to the heart. Oh, I understand that, but it's out of the heart, that the mouth, or out of the abundance of the heart, what's in the heart that the mouth speaks. So the Bible speaks of, of the the origin of life not being your brain, but your heart. Now, we've heard all of this. We understand that Jesus lives in us. But the real question then becomes, are we living like Jesus is in us? That's where the rubber is going to hit the road, friends. We can know it, but how are we going to live it? Well, fortunately for you, I have the answer. There's a story about it. In fact, it's in that same book of Acts, chapter number 16. And I'm going to try and get through it just as quickly as I possibly can because I'm running out of time. But this is what it looks like living it so that the world, that's everybody else who isn't saved, right? So that the world may know that Jesus lives in us. You've heard the story many times. It's the story of two characters named Paul and Silas. Now, I'm not going to read the entire story for you. But it begins in verse number 16 of Acts 16 with these words, as we were going to the place of prayer. Paul and Silas said, as we are going to the place of prayer. Now, I got to tell you, that's not a real great introduction to a story. We prefer one of those things that they have on TV that says, previously in the book of Acts, 
or last week on the, in, the, in this story, Paul and Silas say, as we were going to the place of prayer, and then I'm going to summarize it for you. Two missionaries. Their names are Paul and Silas. They're already major people in the life of the early church. They've already gone on one missionary journey. They're partly into their second missionary journey. And they're on their way uh, to Europe, basically, to a place called Macedonia in Greece. Because Paul had had a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come help us. And so they come to the city of Philippi, which is their first stop on the continent of Europe. It's a Roman colony, and they begin looking for a synagogue. And guess what? There's no Jewish synagogue to be found in Philippi. And Philippi is a fairly big city, but it doesn't even have, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but every city required that there be at least 10 Jewish men in order to start a synagogue. So there's no synagogue in in Philippi which tells him that there's no Jewish people there, right? So they go down to the river where Jews will, will meet if there's no synagogue. And they still find no men there, but they do find some women who are meeting together on the Sabbath day. And Paul begins to preach for them. And a woman named Lydia says, Wow, Paul, what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. I want to become a believer. Please baptize me and my whole household. And so Paul does that even though this woman, Lydia, is not an ethnic Jew. She's what you call just a plain worshiper. Uh, But she's from the Asian side of what is now the country of Turkey from the city of Thyatira. And from what we read between the lines, this woman, Lydia, is probably pretty wealthy. And I say that because she was a merchant of purple goods. Now what does that mean? It means she was a seller of purple. To have purple cloth was considered to be a great luxury in that culture. She was a seller of purple. And the Bible tells us that her home was big enough to accommodate Paul and Silas, the writer to the Acts, Luke, and Timothy, Paul's student, plus her entire household, and she probably even had a home back in Thyatira. She's from Thyatira, but she's now in Philippi. In that culture, that meant you had some means. So back to my summary. Paul and Silas, they're trying to keep a low profile. They're preaching among the women who are gathered there at the river. And that's where the story then picks up here in verse number 16. And Paul, or Luke tells us that Paul was, and Silas were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And from her spirit of divination, she brought her owners much gain through the art, if you want to call it that, of fortune telling. Now, Luke doesn't tell us how much gain she brought to her owners or how much money she made them. But there's an ancient work written by a satirist and who told of a man named Alexander who had a similar divination scheme going on. And he charged one drachma and two obols per question of those that came to him for fortune telling. Now that doesn't mean anything to us, but I'll explain that to you. A Greek drachma was about the wage for a day's labor. Lucian says in his writing that this man Alexander was pulling in of about 70 to 80,000 drachmas per year. Fortune telling. People were paying to have their fortune told, sometimes with 10 to 15 questions at a time given to the, for, uh, given to the fortune teller. And they charged per question. So this slave girl is probably earning her master easily somewhere around 200 times the average wage. And of course they're keeping her in slavery in the process. And they possibly did some very cruel things to encourage the kind of manic behavior that made her witchcraft, her fortune telling possible. Are you with me? Here's where it gets interesting. Paul and Silas don't cast the demon out of this slave girl. 
And it says they don't do it for many days. Now, it's not clear why, but what's interesting is that this girl, in spite of being demon-possessed, speaks the truth. You find it in our passage there in chapter number 16. She spoke the truth. She follows Paul and Silas around. And the demon says, and here's the truth that she was speaking, the demon inside of this girl speaks and said, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Can you imagine that? A demon-possessed person, a voice comes out of them and says, These men are the, of the Most High God who speak to you the way of salvation. So Paul, and I love this, says, the scripture says, Paul finally becomes greatly annoyed. And he casts the spirit out of the girl in the name of Jesus. And I don't know, maybe, maybe Paul's tired of being interrupted by this demon, or maybe he's upset with the enslavement of this girl, or maybe he's just annoyed because he knows that this is going to seriously change his mission here in the city of Philippi. But as always, the gospel of Christ upsets the economic system. How? Because when Paul cast the demon out of this slave girl, her owners could no longer make the money that they were making. And friends, anytime you start stealing out of people's wallets, you're going to cause an uproar. They looked at Paul and Silas as stealing their living, their means of making a living. The Greek word that's translated is her owners saw that their, their hope of gain was gone. <laughs> it's the same word that says the Spirit came out of her. My translation, her owners saw that Paul had exercised their income. So Paul and Silas then faced the same reaction to taking away their income that Jesus faced when he cast the demons into the herd of pigs back in the Gospel of Luke. You remember that? I think all 600 of those pigs went and jumped over the cliff to their death. You suppose the pig rancher was happy with that? Probably not. It happened again in Luke, in Acts chapter 19, when the silversmiths in Ephesus realized that the gospel was bad news for their sale of engraved idols. So they incite a riot against Paul and Silas. The merchants get all the Philipp uh, people of Philippi riled up and they're saying, you know, these men are disturbing our city. They're Jews. They're advocating customs that are, that are not acceptable for us as Romans to practice. So the powers in that, that be in that city said this, okay, we've got to do something about these outsiders or we're going to have some serious disorder and that will attract Caesar's attention. And we sure don't want Caesar to get involved in that. So... What we're going to do is we're going to take Paul and Silas and we're going to flog them. And, and, and tomorrow we're going to let them out of jail, but today we're going to flog them. Tomorrow we'll let them out of town and hopefully they'll get out of town and everything can go back to normal. So that's what they do. They whip them, they strip them, they beat them, they throw them in prison, and they put them in stocks and bonds. They were a form of torture, not just captivity. And then midnight comes. Midnight, hours after they had been beaten and whipped. Way after they should have fallen asleep. The jailer's already fallen asleep, it's so late. And Paul and Silas begin praying and singing hymns to God. And other prisoners in the prison begin listening to them. Now, I'm guessing that these other prisoners were probably shocked that Paul and Silas were singing. But Paul and Silas, you see, they understood that because Jesus had ascended into heaven, and because Jesus was ascended on his throne at the right hand of God the Father, he's the one in control of this situation. Not the rulers of the city of Philippi, not the Jews, not Caesar, but God. 
And then comes the part that really gets our attention. God shows His power in response to their worshiping in the midst of their situation. How does He do that? He sends an earthquake. Their chains fall off. The doors of the prison open. And Paul and Silas somehow miraculously escape into the night, never to be heard from again. Oh, that was a fairy tale. I'm sorry. Now, what would you do if you've been beaten? You've been put in chains. You're in a damp, dark dungeon in the middle of the night. You have no friends or allies in the city. And all of a sudden, an earthquake comes and your chains fall off and the doors of the prison come open. What would you do? I know what I would do. I'd make tracks. Amen? But that's not what happens. That's the story that makes sense. But that's not what happens. The story goes on and says, Paul and Silas continue to pray and sing. God sends an earthquake. Their chains fall off. The doors open. And these guys stay right where they are. In prison. They're just hanging out in prison. <laughs> Having a good old time. In prison. <laughs> and I, I, I want to say, Paul, Silas. Guys, you need to understand that when you pray for something and God gives it to you, you might want to take advantage of it. Get out of here. Makes sense to me. But Paul would tell us, you're the ones that don't get it. We've always been free. Chains didn't make us captive. Being in prison doesn't make us a prisoner. We're just here to take the gift of freedom that Jesus has given to us and to pass it on to whomever needs it. In the same way as Jesus, when he ascended on high, led a host of captives and he gave gifts. Paul's perspective Hear me if you haven't heard anything else. His perspective in the midst of this situation is that he is free. He's free, and the jailer in charge of the prison, he's the one that's the captive. <laughs> Both he and Silas know that if they were to do what was normal and get out of that prison at that point in time, that jailer was going to be killed. And Paul and Silas had no need to get their freedom at the expense of an unsaved person's life. They'd already been freed at the expense of someone's life. Jesus. Can I just have a couple minutes? The earthquake gives the jailer the opportunity to become free. Not Paul, not Silas. It gives the jailer the opportunity to become free. And that's why Paul and Silas don't flee the jail. And that's why the jailer then asks them, what do I have to do to escape? What do I have to do to be rescued? What do I have to do to be saved? And they answered, and it's not the answer you would expect. Run for your life as fast as you can. No, the answer is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your entire household. They spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all the prisoners who were in that jail. And the jailer then takes Paul and Silas and washes their wounds. Why? Because he's just been cleansed and now he's going to give the gift of cleansing to them. You see the cycle beginning? Giving and giving and giving. And then after feeding them, this, boy, this jumped off the page at me. I don't know that I've ever recognized this in this story. It says the jailer took them to his home 
and fed them. The jailer took the inmates to his home, fed them, and then apparently takes them back to the prison where the story continues because the magistrates come by the next day. And they say, okay, you can let those men go. And Paul says, no, we're not leaving. Okay, Paul, an earthquake has tried to free you. The people who put you there, they're now saying you can be free. What's it going to take, Paul, for you to leave this place of captivity? Paul says, and here's the direct quote from verse number 38, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And when the magistrates heard these words... They were afraid because Paul and Silas were Roman citizens and Cicero, the Roman statesman, had said to bind a Roman citizen is to commit a crime and to flog him in abomination. Can I just cut to the chase and tell you what's getting ready to happen here? You know what God has just set up through this whole story? He's made it possible for the Apostle Paul to eventually get to the city of Rome because as a Roman citizen they had to take him to Rome as a result of going to Rome the gospel was spread in the city of Rome and eventually to the country of Spain to where in 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue the gospel came to America You say that kind of life, living like that, staying in prison when you could have gotten out, that don't make sense. You're right, it doesn't. But that's what happens when the anointing of the Spirit and the giving of God to us goes from here to here. It makes us look at every obstacle as being an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. We sometimes call it Blooming where you're planted. We need to start blooming where we're planted, even if we don't like the field we're planted in. That's what happened here. Magistrates came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Such an amazing story. But here's the story within it. And again, closing. I said that too earlier. What kind of church did Paul leave behind there in Philippi? I mean, we, we spoke of Lydia. She found Jesus through a rather intellectual discussion of Jewish scriptures. We spoke of a slave girl who found Jesus in a dramatic act of power and deliverance. We spoke of a jailer who found Jesus in a totally unexpected act of mercy, grace, and forgiveness, along with a host of convicts who found Jesus. That's the church that Paul and Silas left in the city of Philippi. Now think about that. A church that transcends spiritual types, a church that transcends spiritual needs, a typical church of that day, this was not. You see, Rome thought that they had, had united all the people of Philippi under Caesar's rule. But Luke tells us of the church that had this makeup, a church that began with a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. Why is that important? Because the despised and rejected of that day we're united by an ascended Jesus. And in him we too can rejoice that there is no distinction, Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse number 11, there is no distinction between Jew nor Greek, between slave and free, between women and men, for the same Lord is Lord of all, knowing and bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Worship team, would you come please?
as they are coming, I have a couple of rhetorical questions I want to ask, just for your consideration. Do you understand that Jesus has given you His glory? Do you understand that that glory is so that we can be one in unity? Do we put as high a priority on that unity that will transcend economic lines, ethnic lines, spiritual interests, political lines, or other opinions? Friends, we've just come through a week here in America where we've seen tragedy take place. Senseless, needless tragedy based on the color of a man's skin. It's almost, it's almost too horrible to think about. I don't know how many of you watched the video. If you haven't, I, I'm sitting watching this video and I'm thinking, how can these people standing by with a video camera videoing this horrific murder of a person who is simply pleading, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I've read a lot of response on Facebook and through conversations with extended family this past week. People asking questions, how do we get past this? I can tell you how we get past it. Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't see his skin color. We used to sing it this way, and I'll add a color for the sake of some of our Spanish friends. Red and yellow, brown, black and white. They're all precious in His sight. Friends, there are people that are hurting. They may not look like us. They may not act like us. They may not be familiar with our culture. But they are men and women who are as important to Jesus as any one of us sitting here this morning are. And they need reached with the good news of Jesus. The answer is not found in protests. It's not found in rioting. It's not found in looting. It's found in Jesus. And someone just being Jesus to somebody who desperately needs Jesus. That's the answer. Does it transcend those lines? Does our unity transcend those lines? And just another couple of questions. If today you're praying to be released from some type of captivity, have you really thought about what might happen afterwards? How are you going to use that freedom? How, how are you going to pass on the gift that you've been given of being given your freedom? What has God given to you that you can give to someone else? I don't know about you, but I think those are important questions. It's not like you're making some kind of deal with God. I've heard people say, God, you get me out of this, and then I'll pay you back. Make it worth it. God, just get me out of this. That's not what you're doing. It's not what you're doing. It's preparing me to understand that when I've been set free, and I have been, my freedom is not just for me alone. It's for everyone to experience. Would you stand to your feet with me? And I want every head bowed and every eye closed. Friends, we are in Christ. And Christ is in us. And he's in us so that we may be one, so that the world may believe, and so that the world may know God. And so that the love of God the Father, the love that he has for Jesus, can be made known in us. And when he's known in us, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. 
that you love one another. Red and yellow, brown, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight. Lord Jesus, this morning I thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that the day in America will come where we don't make decisions as to whether or not we're going to be Jesus to somebody based on the color of their skin or which side of the tracks they live on or whether they live in a tent. Lord, we need to get this deep into our spirit this morning. That you ascended on high and you gave us complete, full access to the throne of God. And when we bring somebody else along with us to that place of knowing you as their Lord and Savior, they too have full access to the throne of God. And there they can ask for grace and for mercy to help them in their time of need. Lord Jesus, I've never given an invitation quite like this one this morning, but I'm just praying, dear God, that that you will drive this deep into our spirit today. That because we have access to the throne... You want us to give access to the throne to others who desperately need it as well. And God, we thank you. We thank you for that promise, that assurance, that assurance that we belong to you, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus.